0: you're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We're going to conclude today our series um, called Defining Discipleship. Everybody say, Defining Discipleship. I really appreciate you, uh, you saying that and uh, also uh, sticking, sticking with me here on this series. I'm so excited about getting into the book of Genesis uh, because I feel like the best way to spend time together as a community, as a family, as a church, is to just open up the scriptures from left to right and allow it just to speak to us as it needs to be spoken and, and not to do too much work to kind of uh, rally up different scriptures to create topical um, thought and, 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 and preach on different ideas like discipleship. It is important, however, and hopefully it's been fruitful in these last three weeks just to take a pause and, and reflect for a little bit. Uh, not just on the character of God, but the calling of the church and ask ourselves the question, um, are we gathering uh, continually for the right reasons? Are we putting most of our efforts and our time and our first and our best towards things that matter most? And according to the greatest commission uh, next to the Great Commandment is the Great Commission, the greatest commission ever given to the church. The only vision statement that really uh, activates any church, no matter what kind of nomination you are, is Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. And so that's why we've taken just three weeks to set apart at the very beginning of our years. we get into city groups to ask ourselves, what is a disciple and how do we make disciples? So if you look on the screen... There is a picture that we've been looking at uh, of up in and out. It's kind of this like caricature drawing of Jesus uh, that is based on this Dallas Willard quote. He wrote The Divine Conspiracy, uh, defining discipleship as somebody that would do what Jesus would do if he were you. Okay, So if Jesus had your job and your kids and your schooling and education and your you know, societal benefits or whatever it may be, how would he live his, uh, his 365? You know, how would he live his seven days a week 365, how would he act and live and and, and breathe and move if he were you? And so there were three patterns that we looked at in imitating the life of Jesus. Uh, The video said he has three great loves that he wrapped all of his rhythms around. And if you were to look at not just what he talked about, but the 80% of his body language and nonverbal action, that the life of Jesus was uh, sending a message. Uh, And it was sending a message about not just going to heaven when we die, but going back to the garden with him as we followed him to get back into the kingdom of heaven, to follow him, to repent and believe daily into perfect intimacy with the Father. And it would say it was not unusual. In fact, it was very common for Jesus to steal away in moments of his time. Not to waste and fritter away time, but, but to really uh, make the most to, to embrace uh, the present moments of his day uh, in intimacy with his Father. And, and out of all the things that Jesus did, the disciples didn't ask him how to do a lot of stuff, but they did ask him, how did you pray? because they recognized that being such an engine to everything that he did was this intimacy, this private room with his father, that he would go away with his father, and there wouldn't just be a duty, but a genuine affection for his father. And so we asked ourselves the question, if we're disciples that make disciples, do we have a genuine affection for our father in heaven? Do we sense his pleasure on us? Do we uh, talk to him as a son or as a daughter? Do we, um, do we keep his secrets well? Do we hold secrets in, in our heart uh, you know without posting them or without telling everybody about them do we do we have a secret place with God would be a question to ask in terms of discipleship the second pattern that we saw is that Jesus spent fifty percent of his time with his family members with his disciples um, he had the greatest mission the world has ever seen to to see the world saved uh, into into eternity with with God and, and and he had a lot to do but his his appointments uh, It said in the scriptures, 50% of the time would be not with uh, the farthest reaches in the four corners of the earth, rather it would be with his friends and his family. And something about what God was sent to do, what God sent Jesus here to do, was to rebuild a spiritual family where there's openness, honesty, transparency, where there's a level of community. Koinonia is what the scripture would talk about. It's not that that, that Jesus was just sent to go on a mission, but he was also sent to build a family, uh, to be one with a community. And that's really important to the life of Jesus. And then very last, there was this out component that Jesus didn't just stay in the corner huddled praying for something to change. No, he stepped into the change and brought lightness, light into darkness and saw um, the kingdom of heaven overcome the, the kingdom of darkness in the places that he was, uh, spiritually, systemically, individually, uh, in terms of charity, in terms of, of healing. He, he brought the kingdom of God with him and extended the kingdom of God into every place he put his feet. And so, and so as we follow Jesus... We are not just following him into our greatest dreams and desires. We're following him into the very image of God. We're following him back to the garden in Genesis 1, where we were made to look like him and be like him, to have perfect intimacy, to have perfect identity, and have perfect authority walking hand in hand with him, to repent and believe. And and then there's another chart, and we went over this last week as a visual reminder that hopefully sticks with us called the Invitation and Challenge Matrix. And we talked about the importance of not just us going to, be better tomorrow to be like Jesus. No, actually being like Jesus is, 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 is uh, integrally attached and, and connected to listening and responding to his voice. That we have no power to transform ourselves. That we only have the power and the advantage to, to be transformed by the word of God and, and by what we called last week, these kairos moments. That, um, that there's these open moments of time when God's always teaching and there's tons of commands to try and obey in the, in the Bible. But really the most important command is the command that God is speaking to us right now, that he's giving us a faith to respond to. And so that's what we were asking last week, is is do you know what your Kairos moment is? Do you know what what God is speaking to you? And then further than that, what this chart is talking about, is do you have the people around you that are going to help to steward that Kairos moment? Well, we know that Kairos moments, the invitation to change, to be like Jesus, has all sorts of resistance it has all sorts of obstacles and problems that are coming come along with it because the world and ourselves and the inner voices and the, the, the critics and the, and, the, and, the, and the people that are ambivalent towards us are not going to support us. Rather, they're going to probably try and mute the voice of God in our life and maybe invite us into just kind of passivity or, or, um, or fear or anxiety or shame or legalism or all these other kinds of non. Um, transformative things and powers and forces in our life, but do we have maybe just a few, maybe just a spiritual family, maybe just a small group, a group of people that would invite and challenge us into the empowered place, not the apathetic place where, um, where we're just too much and I don't really wanna deal with you and you know, like, uh, you're, be, you know, you're being too needy and, and your problems don't matter, you know that kind of apathetic relationship, that ambivalent relationship, that's not gonna get us through our Kairos moment. And season, and that stressed relationship that's always telling us, "Well, be better and do better." And why aren't you more like this person? Why? That's not the voice of the Kairos moment. That's not the voice of discipleship. And and so, how do we get out of the cozy quadrant? And sometimes it even see the dip. It brings us into this stressful place sometimes when when we're used to that cozy place where there's just comfort and convenience, and everybody you're awesome, and she's awesome, and they're awesome, and there's no need to change. Sometimes it feels a little bit stressful. But ultimately, what feels like a stress quadrant for a season. Can sometimes transition us into a really healthy, empowered season. Sometimes we go home feeling, you know, criticized and 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 um, offended at certain truths that are spoken to us, you know, in a worship set or in a sermon or in a small group. But but when we really sit with the Lord, we realize that God disciplines those that He loves, and and maybe that stress moment gets turned into a empowered moment. So today um, we're going to close up this series, and I just want to put this one question here on 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 the screen to consider and. And I don't know what to call this. This isn't a sermon. It's 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 a message. Um, sermons need to focus on the character of God. And like I said, today is the last time that I just want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about the calling of his church. Um, but the question is, is like, what's the plan for City Lights in this in this question? Like, if this is all true, if the most important thing that we're doing is looking like Jesus, following Jesus to look like him, and then facilitating very intentional relationships that... that Help to facilitate that kind of repenting and believing, those Kairos moments. Like, what does City Lights do as a group, as an organization? Like, what can we do from an organizational standpoint to try and nurture that, uh, to, to promote that kind of stuff? And so, um, I, I bring that question up with a level of trepidation. Not unlike what Taylor was getting at this morning. I think that was very apt to what he was talking about. Is the answer to seeing the kingdom come in our life is, is always a lot more simple and less sophisticated sometimes than we like, and that's just to trust in God. I mean, ultimately, that's the plan. That's the answer, is to follow his voice. There's nothing better I could tell you today, this morning, um, you know, in our 20 minutes together, than to to listen to what God is saying and just trust that it's true. To turn and trust, to repent and believe. That's the answer. Um, but plans are important, and, uh, and and the Lord, you know, says to, to make plans he says that we make plans and then God directs our, our steps through those plans and so we hold our plans with a sort of open-handedness you know like we make a plan so he can interrupt it there's nothing wrong with plans he says don't worry you know like the lilies and the sparrows don't worry but also he doesn't say don't plan you know having a plan is not a bad matter matter of fact Dallas Willard's third quote that we'll use in this series is is uh is that um you want to know you know the two most important questions of your life is are you making disciples and if not what's your plan to do so And so I say all this with with the answer, the plan is to trust God, but there's also, you know, if the Lord willing, if, if he has us tomorrow, waking up tomorrow in that way, you know, still with our heart beating and his grace being sufficient, what plan would we put before him? So here's a question I want us to think about as we get into that question. And that is, if you were to be sitting next to somebody this morning who, um, you know, 45 minutes ago was not trusting in Jesus, um, but then because of the service or because of uh, a moment uh, that happened in worship or because of something that was going on, you know, in the teaching uh, or preaching that was going on at that church service, if they, if they were sitting next to you today um, and they trusted in Jesus for the first time, they trusted in Jesus for the first time, they didn't trust and now they do because of faith, they were awakened to God. And they told you that in, in their seat right next to you. And then service kind of went on, and, and I closed in prayer. And, uh, and then you wanted to go introduce yourself to that person and go and reach out to them. And you found out that they don't live in Greenville, that they live in Atlanta. And that after the service, they're going to go drive to Atlanta. They don't know anybody there. Uh, they, they've never lived there before. Um, they have no idea. They just got a job out in Atlanta, and they're going to go move out to Atlanta, and you'll never see them again. And let's just pretend there's no social media, so you can't circumvent the, 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 the issue. But this is my question. What is your prayer for that? That goes to Atlanta. So, this person, right? This person has just now encountered God. This is a precious Kairos moment that none of us could create any charts that are going to facilitate a Kairos moment for this young brother. And this person is now part of the family of faith but has no understanding of how to get there or how to find family or how to walk with Jesus. I want to put some some, uh, statistics up on the board that might um, encourage uh, and sharpen and. Help us think intentionally about plans as a church. So some statistics about American church today is that 80% of the unchurch, and this is going to sound like an oxymoron, but 80% of the unchurch will lose their faith. So suggested that they find their faith in a public environment like this. If they go home without finding spiritual family in one year's time, 80% of our friends from Atlanta will not have faith if they don't find family. So if that family, uh, if that faith is not steward, that kairos moment isn't put into a soil of discipleship, is that God is powerful and, uh, and, and he can move mountains, but he chooses to allow people to choose freely. And the seeds, as scriptures would say, are scattered in all types of soil. And what happens to that soil over the next year will matter. And statistically, and maybe biblically, we would say that 80% having not found spiritual family, 20% are really on fire, they go for it, they get it. But 20, 80% are not. Okay, so unchurched people. Number two, 60% of churched youth, meaning people that grew up from the cradle into high school that are taught continually about uh, spiritual life, about following Jesus to look like him, if they are not able to find a spiritual family of four or five adults, this comes from a book called Sticky Faith, which Colin Urbanic and I were talking about Tuesday morning at uh, Crave Coffee, which is a great place, by the way. Um, Sticky Faith is telling us that if they don't find four or five adult, nurturing, discipling relationships, multi-generational relationships, not like outside of youth group, like in the church family as at large, that 60% of them will not return to church once they go to college. And, and so it talks about in this study, this idea that if kids just learn to wear a Jesus jacket, meaning they behave like Christians, but if Jesus weren't to permeate and saturate who they are from a family perspective, in a spiritual family, they will uh, become uh, unchurched very, very quickly, that they will they will lose their faith. And lastly, that 60% of the people here in Greenville, and I'll show some Greenville statistics later on today, but 60% here in Greenville, from the day of them being born to the day of them dying, will not visit a church. They will never visit a church. So what do these statistics tell us? Um, I put the words kind of at the very end to, to kind of connect our, our vocabulary today, but what are these, what are these statistics telling us is that Uh, Our friend in Atlanta, as well as all the friends that we have gathered in this room, you and me, as well as all the people that are gathered around us in Greenville, not Atlanta, um, the lion's share of us will not be able to successfully follow Jesus to look like him without healthy uh, discipling families coming around us. But the greatest prayer that we could pray for our friend that goes to Atlanta is, God, help them find a spiritual family. Help them find spiritual moms and dads help them find spiritual brothers and sisters. There's a great chance 20% of those people will go off and and forge their way into faith and in five years, maybe not really create an intimate bond. But outside of those 20%, 80% of the people will need to find a spiritual family. They will need multiple opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. This is them. This is uh, us. This is you and me. You and me are not just uh, isolated people in vacuums that for us to thrive in faith, we will have to have multiple opportunities to be invited into baptism. This is what the statistics say. For us to understand what the gospel means, we will need to hear it six or seven times. We will need to have multiple opportunities to be saturated in gospel repentance uh, scenarios. We will not just need one, one encounter, one Billy Graham message, one moment on YouTube, one moment in the worship room. No, we need multiple opportunities to be surrounded with people that we connect with in family to hear and respond to the gospel. What does that tell us about, uh, about church? Is that if the church builds a building and builds a um uh, an organization, uh, but doesn't build a family that will go outside the four walls of the church, then we will not be able to fill our, our missional calling. And isn't this true about almost everything else in life? You don't, you don't hope that a kid uh, becomes an athlete, a star athlete, because he has one good game. Like your hope is similar to that, to the discipleship pattern. It's like, I want them to get on a great team with a great coach, so they what? So they have multiple opportunities to thrive. I don't want my kid to make one good, great, on a test, like, I want them to be, that's why we, we, we pray about our schools, and we decide discerningly with our parents, like, what school should I get? because we want our kids, we understand it's not one day, good day or bad day, it's multiple days, it's the residual of days, and so this is what we've, we've seen with invitation and challenge, it's not just one interaction of, of invitation and challenge, but it's, this is the, the quote I haven't screamed, discipleship is not an event, but repeated rhythms of relationship, otherwise known as family. It is the continual prayer of the saints. It is is our mission, our commission, our calling underneath the character of God to follow Jesus, to look like him. And if that's to take place, it's not going to happen in one day. It will be low and slow, continual efforts, multiple opportunities, hopefully for that 60% of the unchurched here in the city to hear and respond to the gospel without having to go or be anywhere other than right where they are. Is the church designing itself and facilitating itself in a way that the gospel... We'll have multiple opportunities to have interactions with people outside the four walls of the church. Multiple opportunities to permeate the life and the culture of Greenville. If it's not, then it's not headed towards the Great Commission. So this is a passage that we'll look at this morning. And and we've looked at it a lot through the value series. I want to reiterate it one time. But then I want to pull one verse out of it. And I want to string that along throughout the rest of the book of Acts to watch a, a certain common pattern. Um, not just on what the church is doing, but also where the church does it uh, that speaks, I think, to the idea of building spiritual family. So uh, look alive here on verse 42. This should be very familiar to us in terms of our ethos for city group and what we want to do when it comes to building family. But it says that the early church uh, of Pentecost... Uh, was devoted to certain things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold possessions and property and gave to one another in need. And this is the verse that I wanna highlight, spotlight today. Verse 46, it says that every day they continued to meet together in their temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So I'm gonna read that one more time. Verse 46 says that every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The two uh, focal words to look at there are temple and home. So it's, it's a verse that, that speaks to us, not just on what they're doing, but also where they're meeting. There's two uh, fundamental places that I want to look at in Scripture as we move through this and hang with me through the book of Acts to see not just the what and the where, or where the what and the how and the who, but also the where this is taking place. It was happening in, the, in two places, in the temple and in the home. All right, so there's three missionary journeys uh, of the apostle Paul. And I'm going to start from the earlier books of Acts that kind of show the early sets of, of, of missionary journeys that Paul takes, um, starting in uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. This is before Paul, but this is Peter um, and John who are walking through the temple. Beautiful. They see a guy that's crippled by the gate. They pray for him. And it says, uh, thinking about the where again, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple For the time of prayer. They actually went three times a day to the temple prayer. And so what we see at the apostolic for the apostolic uh, mission, the sending, the fulfilling of early fulfilling of the Great Commission, is that the Great Commission uh, would first and foremost meet people in the temple. That they would go continually, habitually, in a devoted way to pray corporately together in the temple. And so this was very important because uh, it wasn't just house churches and the idea that it's just me, my friends, me four and no more. There's this idea of this corporate place. As a matter of fact, the picture that's on the screen is a picture of Solomon's portico or Solomon's colonnade. That it says in Acts chapter 5, the church would gather all of the saints in Jerusalem in this one location... It's 600 by 600 feet, which means that you could fit about 30,000 people in it. We know the first Pentecost uh, gathered uh, 3,000 people in it. And so however big the church was would gather in this portico. So when it comes to the idea of, well, God doesn't work through megachurches, the first church was a megachurch. It was awfully big. And so there would be all sorts of public things that would go on and needed public things when it comes to the idea of like, well, why don't we just do small groups and do worship online and go to YouTube and do church that way? That's not the way that church was meant to function in the beginning. So there's this temple idea where people would gather in large numbers. Then it says in uh, Acts 5, verse 42, uh, I believe that it is, that this pattern would continue. It wasn't on accident because it explicitly states in many different, like, selahs in the passage, just different little breaks in the passage. It would say something like this, that day after day, the temple courts, uh, they would gather, uh, the apostles would, and then they would go, listen, from house to house. So there's the temple And there's the home. They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Another example of this was in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when Peter uh, was was nearly killed for his faith, one of the many times that he was uh, within an inch of his life. He comes back to celebrate, not in the big temple to go and give a testimony with a microphone. Rather, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, uh, where the people were gathered and praying. And so this idea that if you were to go into the house of the saints in the earlier days, you would not be uncommon to have a group of people just there praying. It's not something that goes on in church or just when there's a prayer meeting or when it's from 630 to 830. No, it's just we pray. This is the ethos. This is what we do in our homes as well as the temple. All right. As we continue, we see the missionary strategy, not just for teaching, but for reaching people, starts in the temple and moves to the home. In Acts chapter 14, verses 1, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, do their typical pattern. They would always go, mainly not just because of efficiency, but also because of calling. It was to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. That was always the missionary strategy. So anytime they went to a new place, they'd go to the temple. They'd ask, where the Jewish people gathered? And we're going to take the Old Testament, the Torah, and we're going to, uh, we're going to um, frame it in a way to help Jewish people understand who Jesus is. And that was the whole pattern. So they'd go to the temple, and it says, as usual, in the Jewish synagogue. And they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews would believe. That's Acts 14. Again, this is regarding the church of Ephesus in verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. There it is again, the repeatable rhythms, the continual, not just one and done conference mode, like three months just staying in a place and waiting on God and seeing him move on people's hearts. But some of them become obstinate. And here we see a transition in the second missionary journey. The further they move into the interior of Europe, It says they were maligned publicly by the way, capital W, so the way of Jesus, the gospel. And so it says that Peter left them. He wasn't attached to the method. He was attached to the message. And he didn't insist on just preaching in the church. He took the disciples with him and he rented out a hall of Tyrannus. There was this really rich guy. And from the hours of two to four, the kind of nap time, he would just teach daily in this like at Furman, in this lecture hall. He just rent it and have a bunch of people come out. And for two years, he saw what later on in Acts 19 says, that all of the whole entire area of Ephesus was able to hear the gospel because of just continual, repeatable rhythms of working in the temple. And he says this on the beach. This is so cool. At the very end, like in tears, he speaks to the church that he's like given his life for. And he just prays. You can hear him writing in prison. Like, I just hope that what was given here and established here is not lost. This is what he, he, he commends to them on the beach as he leaves Ephesus and never returns. The, Ephesus is gonna be the most important, powerful church for 400 years in the early church history. He says this to them and commissions them, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. Man, I had a whole bunch of other passages, but for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip them. Um process of, of the mission of the apostolic mission of God from the beginning of Acts chapter one all the way throughout had a public ministry and a private ministry. It understood that there needed to be a place of inspiration and a place of unity and a place, place of momentum, but none of that would ultimately sustain the move of God uh, and the apostolic calling and sending of God if it didn't come home to the household. And so what you actually see in places where there's resistance to the gospel, like in, in further into Greece and Macedonia, is when when Paul shows up to places, remember he's in the prison and the and the jailer is all scared because the prison walls fall down and and he's like in trouble. And Paul's like, Don't worry, man, Jesus is alive. He's gonna save you and he's gonna save your household. And and, and we see that with with the jailer and with Lydia. Remember, there's a lady named Lydia in in Acts chapter, I think, 19 as well. She's the dealer in purple cloths. If you guys are single, this is kind of an advertisement here to go on mission and be a missionary. Because purple cloth means kind of an expensive clothing. And if you look at the passage all the way down in verse 19, that Lydia is not only a fashion designer, but she probably hangs out with models. And so the first missionary journey in Macedonia involved the disciples hanging out with models. So I'm just going to plug that right there and leave that there for anybody that feels called to missions. You might meet a model, just saying. Uh, but, but, but the resistance in the temple, in the public place, drove the Christian movement into the home and into the household. And, and Paul's like, I'll go look for a place to pray if it's by the river. I don't have to go to a temple. I'll see it happen in the home. But no matter where he was, if it was from the home unto the temple, like if it started in the small place and went to the big place, or if it started in the public place and went to the home, it, it was a two-winged bird that he always meant, like it said, to preach publicly, not privately, not scared okay, in the temple to reason and do Socratic teaching even in some of these, the Hall of Tyrannus, uh, but as well as to see it happen in the home. And this is why scholars scratch their head, historians and sociologists alike. One of the greatest signs and wonders that the church has ever shown or seen, the greater things, is the longevity of the Christian church over the last 2,000 years against major speculation and opposition. We're talking about a group of people who were gathered in the upper room at 120. And from year, you know, Zero, basically, effectively, until the fourth century when it was institutionalized by Constantine. We're talking about not just doubling, tripling. We're talking about 50 percent of the Roman Empire, against strong opposition, is now Christian. Without Instagram, without awesome bands and speakers, through the simple breaking of bread, the daily rhythms of temple and home and home and temple. And this is what this is what they study. I mean, this is all just about you know intellectualism. It's not about spiritual or theology. It's like. What do they think, what do historians think is the reason for us continuing, for the church continuing to be strong throughout times of dramatic persecution? You know what they said? One is that it, uh, that it elevated and endorsed women. It was one of the only Christian movements, or one of the only movements, movements that did this at that time, and it was so important because what? The women handed their, their faith down from generation to the next. It was so critical that women were a major part of the movement of God, and I'm not saying that's the only reason why why that happened, but that was absolutely a fundamental tenet. Another reason why is that they took care of their poor and their sick. And there's a sense of unity in the giving of one another. There's a strength from the inside, not from the outside, but from the inside out. Third, that the martyrs of the Christian faith, the early martyrs of the Christian faith, were so so passionate and so zealous that 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 it, that the kind of like loyalty that people had to Jesus in seeing that, they were so captivated and and called you know, by the acts and the martyrdom of, of the early apostles that there was this thing that would go deeper into their heart than nationalism. And Constantine is what they say. Even historians, let alone theologians, will say this, that Constantine gave the church its greatest gift and also its, its greatest curse. Because it, it took away persecution, but it gave it instead an institutionalization. And instead of seeing a church that's handed down from generation to generation, from home to home, we see a church of the temple... But we don't so much as as see back then as a church, as a faith that's owned uh, in the home, in the place of of identity, in the place of, of the small, in the private space. So this would be the question today to kind of like bring things home. But this would be the question today. If Paul were to come to Greenville, South Carolina, what would he see as the expression as the public place, the temple, in those words, and what would he see in the home? I think he would probably see some pretty impressive stuff in the temples of South Carolina. I think he'd be amazed to think that that little old movement that started in the church of Ephesus with some models somehow expanded itself around the globe. So there's literally a church, seven churches in every radius here. There's temples, temples, temples everywhere if we call it temples. Like I think he'd be really impressed at the ingenuity and the innovation and the ability um, to, to hopefully profess the word of God and to gather underneath the spirit of God. But I wonder looking at the, Apostolic model, like if he came to our town, what he would find in the home. I wonder if he would find that if the temple, uh, if the if the if the home of God or the homes rather that the church would gather in, would still have the same kind of fervor, the same kind of zeal, the same kind of empowerment, the same kind of equipping. Would he see the things that would go on in the homes of the early apostles, baptisms, healings, teaching? Would that be something that would be commonplace in the homes of of South Carolina today for the statistics that that were on the board? You realize that all of the letters that are written in the New Testament past the book of Acts, they're not written to churches like buildings. They're written to homes. That's why the first Corinthians, when it talks about eating rights and, and things like, you know, having communion and the rich people eating before the poor people or women wearing shawls and coverings over their hair and stuff like that, like that wasn't about what they did on Sunday morning from 10 to 12. That was talking about the home. And and when James talks about, for example, I think it's in James 5 when he says, hey, like if somebody is sick, call the elders. He's not saying call the elders into the church. He's saying call the elders into the home where you live because healing's supposed to happen in the home. It's, ministry is supposed to happen not, not from a stage, from a platform. Like ministry, when you think of that, the dictionary needs to take you to the home. Like when, when Lydia, you know, came back and her whole household were saved or the prisoner guard was saved or I um, can't remember the... The, 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 the couple, I can't remember, in the, the later book of Acts, um, it, saves, it says their whole household was saved. It says they were baptized that day. That means they were doing baptisms in the bathtub. Like This is the kind of, like, this is the kind of picture that we have in the early church, in, 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 in and in a juxtaposition, in a contrast, I wonder, if Paul came to Greenville, South Carolina today, would he find the church of the temple, or would he find the church of the home? This is the question that, that I would want to ask. So here are some statistics. It's a picture that I found at a Christmas service, no less, last year at my mother-in-law's uh, church. She goes to the Nazarene church. Uh, I, I can't remember what road it is. But these are some statistics of South Carolina. So we're going to apply some of these statistics and think about our state today when it comes to the Great Commission. If the reason our feet are here and not in heaven is to uh, kind of uh, adjust or, or respond to these statistics, they're on the screen. Is there one with, like, numbers and stuff with South Carolina? Hmm, interesting. Okay, so I'm going to have to uh, – I'm going to have to uh, – uh, read these out loud. And Timothy, if you have a slide for me, uh, you can type this out and maybe visually it can, it can show. This is what the statistics said um, in, the, in the pamphlet that I saw on Christmas last year, that there are 4.83 million people who live in South Carolina. And Timothy, I'll probably text you the picture in a moment because it'd be great to have it up. We're going to pray in a little bit and I want to see these numbers um, up here. 4.83 people live in South Carolina The pamphlet went on to say that 2.07 million people are unchurched. So what that's telling us from the very beginning of the message when I was talking about those numbers is that uh, 2.07 people are unchurched, which means that if if 2.07 people were unchurched and they were maybe to come to church and have a faith encounter to have a Kairos moment and meet God face to face, that 1.2 million of those people are going to need small groups within a year. Otherwise, they won't stay in faith. That's what the numbers are telling us. The third statistic, which was kind of crazy, is the fact that 1.83 in the Bible belt, right? 1.83 million people that live in our home state in South Carolina are what you call post-Christian, which means the same people we talked about from the beginning of the message, of of people that are grown up in Christianity. They're just inundated with faith from 0 to 18. They leave the home, they never find a, a faith that finds home in them, and they never find a family to grow up in their faith with, to be discipled by that these are the 1.83 people that you walk down by the street every day and, you th- and they think, I'm done with church. I'm over it. They're not going to get reached by another church program. They're going to be having to be reached by the family of God going on mission, as it was eloquently said earlier uh, today at our city group proposal. So uh, I'm going to send a picture of this to Timothy. Um, if he got those numbers, it would be great to see those on the screen because we're going to pray on those numbers in just a minute. P-R-A-Y, thank you very much. Uh, but all of this boils down to one simple quote. Uh, since we did, I'm not a numbers person. I do like history and did a lot of math and history today. But this is the point that I want us to get. To reach 80% of the unchurched. Okay, so, so, the, so the people of, of God that maybe have some semblance of his kindness. I mean, everybody, Romans says there's a universal divine nature that's revealed to everyone. That they kind of know that God exists and kind of want him to be good. But they need to find a family. The second statistic that we looked at today is to reach the 60% of the church that walk away from God, meaning at 18, they leave and never come home. They're gonna need a city group family or they're gonna need a house church or they're gonna need a home group. You know, there's all these names, D group, C group. I don't care what they're called, small group, community group, life group. They need a family. So the 60% of the church needs a family. 80% of the unchurched needs a family. And the 60% of the post-church, the people that are sick and tired of faith also need a family family. The point is this, that Greenville will not only need the church of the temple, but the church of the home to fulfill the Great Commission. 80% of the unchurched, 60% of the church, and 60% of the post-church, all of those people will all need Citigroup families. If we did the correct math, for 4.83 million people in South Carolina, it would not just need temples and churches on every street and denominations telling them what they should and shouldn't do. No, they would need families. Paul says you have many guides, you have very few fathers, you have very few family members, you have very few people that are laying their life down. Paul or Jesus says that there's a harvest that's white, there's a plentiful harvest, and that there is a math problem of workers being few. So if there's 4.83 million uh, people living in South Carolina, then we would need 480,000 house churches. People that are men and women of God who are ready not just to preach the good news but to live the good news out in front of people that are laying down their life continually that are doing family that are inviting you just as you are to be where you are but not leave you there people that are ready to do high invitation and challenge people that are ready to do discipleship to walk in the rhythms of up in and out not just go somewhere on sunday for two hours but to but to truly be disciples making disciples you need to have four hundred eighty thousand, not just followers leaders within the christian movement to see the city of greenville saturated in the gospel can you let that sink in that's like that's a crazy number we had 11 this morning, and that's fantastic. I was super excited about that. But that's the math problem. That's, that's the calling. At the end of the day, we wait on God, we pray God, we, nothing works. Plans don't work unless God breathes on them. Like, I'm not saying you just make a whiteboard up and just set a bunch of benchmarks and go meet them. At the end of the day, it's always about responding to God. But every now and again, you take a step back, you reflect, you get a perspective, and you ask yourself, if we continue doing what we're doing today... Tomorrow and the next day and the next, will we be a church that helps to reach Greenville for the gospel? That's an important question that we need to think about. To reach the 80% of the unchurched, the 60% of the church, and to reach the 60% of the post-church, that Greenville will not only need churches of the temple, but also churches of the home. Amen? That was my point. All right, so what I'm gonna do is, I want us to, uh, to spend um, our time in prayer for the last eight minutes. We're gonna have... Um, the worship band come up and we're gonna sing one more song in response. And uh, let's see if I can text this to Timothy in time. And uh, I want us to pray about these numbers that are here on the screen. So Timothy, Bain, this is you, buddy. And uh, I'm, while we do that, I'm also gonna put up a scripture that I hope encourages us um, considering um, the harvest because I want us to pray about this. This is what Jesus tells us to pray. Would you go to uh, Timothy, uh, Matthew? I think it's, what is it, six or seven? This is what I want us to to be thinking about today because plans plans don't work without the breath of God on them. Um, But we are engaged. We're not just servants. We know the master's business. And he asks us to ask him. This is the economy we live in. What would take a lot of smart people and historians and church ecclesiology and study, what would take a lot of smart people a lot of time to try and figure out God can change in just a minute if people would ask him. But the question is, is, do we want to ask him? And do we want to hear the, the request? As Taylor's saying, that prayer is about listening, not just talking. Do we want to hear what he asks us to do after we ask him? Is the question. Do we have a burden for the lost? Are we ashamed of the gospel or proud of it? Do we believe there's another hope or do we believe he is the only hope? These are the spiritual questions that fall on the church. It's the same apostolic mission in the temple and in the home. Will the home become the vibrancy of church? Will the home become a family on mission? Will the home be disciples that make disciples? This is the, this is the only math, and there's really no strategy outside of that. You know, it's not going to be a better you know, building or better theology or teaching or cooler graphics. I mean, those are all wonderful things, but at the end of the day, will the family of God be the family of God for the people that need God? That's the question. This is what the verse says. He says, when he saw the crowds, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He didn't see them as resilient, resistant, non-religious people. He saw them as hurting people that really need people to reach out to them. That's how he saw them. That was his vision. And, and to repent and believe to be a disciple like him would be to look at the world the way that he does. Next verse. Then he says, this is what we're going to do in a moment, that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. In other words, it's not that there's so many churches in Greenville that there's nothing to do with the 4.83 million people that live in the state of South Carolina. No, it's not. It's just that there isn't enough workers. There's enough homes for people to come home to. There's enough homes for us to come home to. What does it look like for the, for the church of God, not just to pray for the lost, but to pray for the family to go be on mission for the lost? That would be the question the verse would ask, right? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out the workers into his harvest field. That's the invitation. That's the invitation. If, if we're here for comfort, then we're not ready for that. But if we want to be transformed to the image of Christ and follow Jesus to look like him, that's our prayer. God, mobilize your your workers. Cast off restraint and doubt and misgivings and hatred and and racism. Cast off judgment. Replace a heart of stone with compassion. That's that's the prayer. Would you you mobilize the, the, the only plan you ever gave the earth, which was your church on the move? Would you mobilize your church go about being and making disciples. That's the question. Would you stand? I'd put a text message into Timothy for those numbers if they showed up on the screen, or we can pray on these numbers. Um, I would invite you to publicly, like if you're on, on your own and just reflecting on, by yourself, that's fine, but to gather maybe with one person next to you and just pray whatever comes to mind when it comes to that verse. When you think of that verse in Matthew, he says to look at the skies and see the harvest being white and see the the harvest being plentiful in light of the workers, whatever comes to mind, just to begin to pray. And Taylor's going to lead us in one song at the very end here. But just begin to pray that people find family. For the unchurched, for the post-church, for the people that um, are in the church, that they would find family. Those without family will, will struggle to continue on in God's fullness of purpose. But those who will find the family of God in the home and in the temple, those daily rhythms of breaking bread, gathering for prayer, those will find the very life of God. That is His plan, that is His purpose. Let's just pray for just a moment. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc